on maynard.com.au. AU! One day you're in your lounge room and you turn around and there's someone you haven't seen for 34 years standing at the door. Jackie, good to see you. Has it been 34? How long has it been? Let's work it out. 35, 36 years ago since I've seen you. Oh, well, I was only born around then, so I don't know how that works. There was that time I bumped into you in the morning because I'd gone home with <gasps> who was sharing the place with you at Balmain. And you were in a room with her and I was in a room with somebody else. We were together if, in fortification. <laughs> that, Let's spread that around. That was an amazing house. It was a house in Balmain where just everything seemed to just go off. Oh, that was a great house. I was only there after dark, so I've got oh, no idea. Were dykes. What were you doing there? Well, they were all dykes. I thought she was a dyke, wasn't she? She wasn't a very good one. No, she wasn't a good dyke, but, you yeah. know, I don't know yeah. what your magic powers are, Maynard. <laughs> you are in Maynard International Studios, and, of course, I've had the same nervousness with you that I had with when Warren came over to the studios. Did come to the studios as well? He came to Maynard International Studios Annex. In Sydney. Well, I'm in the real Novocastrian one, the real one. What do you make of this? Is there something you could point out to people that if they could see it, you go, what the hell? I'm truly not sure what to make of this. <laughs> I'm looking at, is that a signed Kylie single? Yes. And that is a photo of you and Kylie underneath. Yes, at the Double Bay Hotel, yeah. Is that the one that Michael died at? No, it's not. I blame you for Michael's death. But there is a notorious video that was taken in that hotel. Of you and Kylie? Of someone and a guy. <gasps> I remember that. Yeah. I do remember yeah. that. And we've got a very large... Oh, that was given to me from Mr. Rock and Roller. That, that's like one of those 50s kitschy drawings. That if you're having a man stag night, that was like a really wild thing to put up or on the wall. stag night. Anybody stag night. And underneath it, we have an aqua-covered lamp. A nice standard lamp. Whenever I'm DJing, I get that out for the oh. door person to have. Is that a stage prop? It's a stage Anyone, prop. It works. Pokey? We've got pokey. And, of course, underneath that, that's a tism box set. Yes, yeah. I saw that. I was moving past that. <laughs> <laughs> I like a speaker's... Yes, they're 70 speakers. They're yeah. gorgeous. So I'm sitting on the 70s lounge. Yep. I actually think I've sat on this lounge somewhere else in my past. I'm really loving, I'm going to use the word juxtaposition of 70s lounge, 60s and 50s, maybe 40s. Got a couple of cross-generational carpets here as well. Now, I've only just recently got the CDs into what they are, so they're all actually in their decades and things can be found. Um, and I don't think I have seen CDs for a long time, so um, yeah, that's rather marvellous. When I say CDs, people go, oh, I don't have – because I've just gone to a lot of trouble to make Castanet Club compilation CD and remaster a lot of them with the help of Jeff Overmore. I go to give them, they go, well, I haven't got a CD player. I've got one in my car. My 2004 <laughs> Mercedes compressor, black, black interior, two-door, sexy. That's you, all right. Oh, f- I do like cars. In the last year, I've had like five cars. You strike me as being a station wagon woman. I love a station wagon. That's what upsets me so much about the coupe. I can't drive along and pick things up from the side of the road. I like freebies. Mm. I like some great leather lounges. I just want to go and get them. I've got you here because we've had the Castanet exhibition come up. Oh. We're talking about the Castanet Club time. I was just doing crazy dancing up the back. Everybody in the Castanet well, Club was extremely complex. So when you were, were thinking, oh, this is coming up again, is there a great stage memory you've got of doing stuff? Of course, Wuthering Heights was almost a signature piece for you. I think 
thinking about it, really, my job was showstopper. So yeah. I did all the showstopping songs. Davelgate Drive. Very Come alive! Ooh, yeah. Come alive! I remember we played it the first time. Kind of like a skiffle version of it. Yeah, it was yeah. very weird. The first time we played and the first time I played out of Newcastle, when we first released the Newcastle Net Club, we did the season at the Belvoir Street Theatre. A great venue for vocals. It was acoustically a wonderful place. It was a really interesting place. For me, that was amazing because you'd been to Edinburgh and you'd done all that stuff. I was in the second coming. Mm. Coming. I was in the second coming of the Castanet Club. We arrived there and it was like a theatre show, yeah? It was the first time that we'd really put it together as a theatre show. We got a real director. That'd be Neil Armfield, wouldn't it? Like a real director. Mm, And we were in a theatre and a very cool theatre because Belvoir was at that stage, I think, the theatre. So in some ways we were an anathema to what they were doing because we were a musical group in a theatre. Yeah, we were the RSO club band in the theatre. And that was one of the great things about the Castanet Club because we could do the Walls End RSL. We could go and do a theatre season at the Playhouse or at Belvoir Street and we could make it work. Do you remember when we did the tour of the Western Suburbs RSL clubs? <laughs> you cannot take this kind of act back to the roots of its comedy, which is the RSL clubs of well, Pennant well, Hills. Well, Rudy Hill, Rudy Hill. Rudy Hill. We did three or four way out west. They the, didn't get it. We were driving for two hours. They didn't get it. All they saw was a bad band, which is kind of what we were, but they didn't get the joke because they were the joke. And I do remember going to Rudy Hill's RSL because I did work out that way after that. I drove past it daily and every every day I had the same memory. <laughs> we went to the Rudy Hill's RSL. It was one of those things because mm. everybody going, who the hell is this band? And I remember walking in and they just looked at us like, who the frick are these people? You aren't thinking about Tweed Heads RSL, are you? No, I think we were very successful at Tweed That was very different because we did have the people from the old people's home down the front who spent the whole time with their fingers in their ears looking very pained, especially when I was singing Mother and Heights. Cranky old people were going, what is this terrible sound? They were dragging them in from the old people's homes. I do remember that. That was a very strange season. We did win over a lot of fans in that environment. It's kind of like Coles to Newcastle. Sorry to use that one. What was your your favourite gig? Did you have one? Was it one of the ones at the festival? There would have been Perth. There would have been Adelaide. Perth Festival. Perth Festival was my favourite because it's the first time I drank alcohol. And was that outside when we played? Outside one. We were playing at the university. I think I remember that night because a big deal was made of the fact that you were having you're on the drink for the first time. I was on the piss, mate. I was only on the piss because we were playing in a quadrangle and they kept telling us that it was a Shakespearean theatre, but in fact it was a quadrangle of the university. It was so painful. Packed. It was so packed. They were hanging off the rafters. 86, wouldn't it? Around then. Mm. Backstage, because it wasn't really a green room, had nothing. They only had beer and champagne and no water and nothing else that I could drink. And I'm the singer in the band and I'm just going, can we just get like a mineral water or something? <laughs> and then we can't because we can't get from the stage to the bar. It was so many people at that gig. So there was pink champagne. And I thought, well, it's pink. And I didn't drink. So you thought, pink champagne, what harm can there be? I started drinking it. Instantly, I fell in love with it. And I got drunk. And then we were going to a party, which was the festival party. I think Glenn was driving. And then we got to the party. And the funniest thing at the party was, at that time, Kate Sobrano and I, people always got us mixed up. People would think when we went out, 
in those festivals, people would always think I was Kate Soprano. I don't know why, because I don't have tits and I'm a lot skinnier than she was. She had huge tits, huge everything. I wasn't huge at all. But we were kind of dark and swarthy, I suppose. People always thought she was me. So I remember meeting her because she was a good Christian woman. Scientologist. Same thing. Don't say that to a Catholic. That'll start a fight. I am a Catholic. And I remember meeting her and we were kind of did this, it's you, it's you. And we started a conversation. Now, I was trashed and this is the first time in my life that I've ever ever had alcohol. And I think I'm just going to Kate Soprano. I'm going to the toilet. You stay there. I'm going to the toilet. So I went to the toilet. And, and she I, was gone. Well, I went to the toilet. <laughs> she was I, in Adelaide by then. So I realised that when you get drunk, things shift. So I'm, I'm sitting on the toilet. It was all swirling around my head. And then I came back and she'd gone. And I'm thinking, what happened? That was my first experience with alcohol. I'm sure Kate remembers that night. I'm sure she does, yeah. The most incredible time, I mean, there were many, the time that the Castanets, when we are at Belvoir Street, one of the first shows I ever played the Belvoir Street, they started the show without me. And I'm out talking to somebody and they started Devilgate Drive and I'm still at the bar. They had to run into the green room and scuttle up. That happened once at Mission Molly Morgan in Newcastle. There was a section where we all had to come on stage and it was a long section where we went on stage and we were all talking and then suddenly we heard our cue. We just had to run backstage and the audience could hear us coming because there was no subtlety involved. <laughs> we had to run really through and appear. It sounded like a thundering horde. I got to the stage. I ran to the front of the stage, onto my knees, hit my knees and slid to the front of the stage and grabbed the microphone. Oh, at the age of Without the singer. That was great. But the most incredible time I ever had was at Bauman Arasa. Oh, which was a great venue, a big cavernous venue. I thought it was a great venue. With a huge stage, plenty of room for all the castanets. And it was around the corner from the Bijou Theatre. Art Deco place. Yeah, and the Bijou Theatre was where Betty Blockbuster had been. That area of Sydney was quite historically important for cabaret because that's where Reg Livermore did that big show. That theatre was one of the first theatres closed down because of the people who'd moved in. It had been a working class, a terribly terrible underground working class Balmain. And then it was gentrified. And when it was gentrified, they moved in and they made them close the theatre down. That's one of the first things I remembered about Balmain. And it was just around the corner from the RSL, which was a fabulous venue. I, I loved playing at Balmain. But I remember one night, and nobody will remember this, I had a transcendental experience on stage. Truly, Maynard. Don't look at me with those no, big open eyes. Because no, you always were quite spiritual about your singing in the first place, so it doesn't surprise me. What actually happened during this transcendental experience, and what song were you singing? And was it a particular part of the song? What happened? Well... I'm a very serious singer and I take what I do very seriously. And when I sing, I've always bring everything into a song. It doesn't matter. And and that was a beautiful thing about the Castanet Club, even though it was this crazy shit happening. I mean, you know, I was the this diva at the front and behind me, like people pulling their pants down and running around like fucking idiots. <laughs> and I remember this night and I think maybe it was Work Song. Work Song, which is on the album. And I was in the middle of the stage and – 
they were packed to the rafters when we played. It's really hard to explain what a Castanet audience was like because the Castanet audience was the show. We were the ancillary to the mm. Castanet audience. And I remember this night we were playing the song and I really deeply got into that because it was a song that used every part of my range. It was like the biggest show-off diva yeah, song ever. Yeah, because you start it with, oh. Oh, world, here on the chain gang. Yeah. Break them rocks out here on the chain gang. I'm breaking rocks and serving my time. And at the end of the <laughs> But I've still got so terribly far to go. And it was incredibly taxing to sing this song really hard song to sing and I always wanted to sing it at the absolute max I could sing it at and every time you do something you know you want to do it better and you want to show off a little bit more and you want to put a little more into it so I remember I would do a lot of that song with my eyes closed and around me during work song because it started off grinding along like the you know the white people grinding along with the chains and then there's a sax song Tron Russell plays sax song And at the end, it just goes off. So on the stage, it was always very quiet at the start. And then it built as a song built, the stage built. And then everybody went freaking crazy on the stage. And I can remember I closed my eyes and I, I know it sounds weird. And I wasn't on drugs or grip drinking, but I left my body. This really happened, and I think it very rarely happens in anybody's life, but I actually left my body, and I'm floating outside my body looking at us on stage because I think I was singing so beautifully that night. I'd gotten myself to another level of singing, and I moved out of my body, and I'm sitting here, I'm watching myself. I'm thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm having this transcendental experience. Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, because I was probably hyperventilating because it was a very hard song to sing. I'm suggesting medically and perhaps it was a minor oxygen deprivation going on there. Of course, now, in retrospect, it was. But at the time, it was transcendental. Then I came back in my body like... (sighs) And I remember opening my eyes and I'm thinking, what the... Did anybody see that? I was just like, oh, my God, oh, my God, that was a... uh," And you're all... I had your pants down and running around like crazy people around me and I thought nobody even fucking noticed that I was out of my body and floating around the RSL then, man. I was in another time zone and you're all doing your own shit and going about and knocking things over and bumming each other and whatever you were doing. It was crazy. And that was a moment of going, I'm truly alone on this stage, really alone. Look at me with these bunch of idiots. I'm truly alone on this stage. Another thing you did in the band, you were uh, one of the main bass players as well. I was the funky-ass bass player, Maynard, let's get that correct. What songs were you laying down the funk in? Oh, every, every song I played, okay. mate. I love the bass. I've said to my students over the many years, if you want to be sexy, you play the bass. Because you'd have the evening gown on and you'd be playing the bass. And you had the fez on too, you had the purple fez. Castanets is why I started playing bass. Do you know how I joined the Castanet Club? No, how 
hell did you join the Castanet Club? Well, I was a special guest. So I used to come as a special guest with my piano player, Vince. We would come and do the jackification of many songs, jazz songs through to – that's where I started Wuthering Heights with him. And I used to take a lot of songs and we'd standardise a lot of pop songs. So that's kind of where Wuthering Heights came from. It went off whenever we played. It went off. So you guys, when you were going to the Edinburgh Festival, who was your bass player? Pete Marnie, otherwise known as Mr Erstwhile. Mr Erstwhile had decided he wasn't going to go with you. He decided he wasn't going to be in the Castanet Club anymore. He left the band momentarily. You guys contacted me and you said, because I played guitar, because I'd been a singer-songwriter around town and I played guitar quite well. And they said, do you play bass? And I said, oh, I don't know. I've never played bass, but I'm sure I can. Yes, I can play bass. I mean, it's just a four-string guitar. Which for anybody in the entertainment game, that is exactly the answer you give anybody. Can you juggle and do a unicycle? Sure, I can do that because you get work when you behave like that. So they said, we'll find you a bass so you can learn all the songs. And they found me a bass. Now, who was the little guy, businessy kind of guy, a little short guy with glasses and red um, hair? Barton Malcolm? Yes. Fox? It was Fox. Yes. Somebody had a bass. He was also the bass player with Musical Flags too, right. yeah. So he had a bass and they gave me his bass. Now, I knew nothing about the bass electric guitar at that stage and I did not realise that the action of a bass electric guitar shouldn't be five inches from the neck. It was an impossible guitar to play, but I didn't know that. So I learned the whole castanet repertoire on this unplayable bass. And I must have had muscle fingers because I don't know how I did it. So I learned the whole repertoire and I went in and they went, oh, Pete's changed his mind. He's going to go. So I was ousted. But when he came back, he left. And then because I think I'd been such a hit at the club and you wanted to get a female singer in permanently and somebody like me did what I did, I think Glenn approached me and Angela approached me and they asked me if I'd want to join and I did join. So I actually became the bass player diva. Wearing a a full evening dress and Mm. playing the bass, it's not a look you see very often outside of a Brian Ferry film clip. Oh, thank you. Well, my costumes were made by a friend of mine, John Parks. Yeah, you had a costumer. I had a, I had a costumer. The rest of it just went to second-hand places or just oh, lucked out. I did that out. too because, oh, I mean, I lived in pyjamas. I only wore pyjamas, I think, at that stage of my life. Like all of us, we all wore second-hand clothes. But we decided that Natasha Bassi should be olame and sexy and slink and gorgeous. John was one of my – I've had many companions in my life, just like the doctor – are they consorts? They're companions. Non-sexual companions. I had a series of male non-sexual companions. Although there was a the whole thing with Tom Baker and a few companions. Yeah, but anyway. There was always a bit of sex there. But, you know, the screen went to black. It turned out that my friend John made all my costumes and he made me gorgeous fitting dresses. I was zipped into them. He learned how to make box hats because we kind of thought about – we had long conversations about how I would look. We did. It was like Madonna, but not. Uh, So we had long conversations about what the look would be. And I don't know if anybody noticed it, but you obviously did. And so I wore the pillbox hat, the fez hat, the pillbox hat. Everyone had their own different style and yours was certainly there. Very lame. So I got every bit of lame from every secondhand shop in Newcastle I could find. And there used to be a lot of lame around, left over from the 50s. And John went on to lecture at Edith Cowan. Western Australia. He's still an artist. He still does work. That was the thing with the Castanet Club has been pointed out. A lot of people are still working as artists even now. And you've got a great singing career. You're working on a PhD. You've had some really interesting success in Germany. Turn around the sea, 
because you've been doing various stuff around town, around the world. Just fill us in on that. Well, you know, I went to art school. The thing about the Castanet Club, I think it was that perfect apex of the underbelly of Newcastle. We had the theatre and the music and the there were so many people from art school, Jody and me and Therese and Michael. It was a perfect fusion of the incredible and exciting things that happened in Newcastle at that well, time. That group of people would use words like signifier. I only found out what that meant last week. I'm using that in my PhD, actually. So. <laughs> I hope you would. It's very Christiva. I did film at university. I don't know if you remember, but I used to make all the Super 8 films for the Castanet Club. Did you do the last milkshake in town? I can't remember what I did. The very first film we made, I got a couple of people to help me because I was in it. But the rest of them, we used to start every half with a Super 8 film. That's right. And it would have us all jumbling up the letters of Castanet Club or running around. Remember the one where we we're all diving off yes. the blocks at yeah. Merriweather Bath? Recently, when um, the interview I did for that documentary for the Castanet exhibition, Glenn was saying to me, oh, well, you know, the blah, blah thinks that the band was blah, blah and, you know, was very theatrical and blah. And I said, actually, I believe that the Castanet Club was cinematic because I think we were all influenced by the Saturday afternoon musical that we watched. Yes. We all had our own movie going on <clears throat> in our head. We definitely did. It was the Busby Berkeley kind of, let's put on a show, Judy Garland. And that was the thing. I mean, it was always, let's put on a show. You know, it did come across perhaps as musical, but I think more than anything, we were cinematic. We viewed ourselves in a cinematic way. We'd started every half with the Super 8 film. I did an animation where we all went to the moon. So I had all the little characters and we got into the rocket and I did it in stop motion. I did it in the fireplace at Dulwich Hill. Bowling Man went to the moon. I do all that stuff. So when the Castanet Club finished, I'd gone on and done my own thing, cabaret shows by myself with piano players. Then I ended up, somebody who I'd been in a band with had gone to Berlin in the late 80s. Just like the Hof. Just like the Hof. And he kept saying to me, you've got to come to Berlin. They'll really get you in Berlin. They'll love you here. Come to Berlin. There is something incredibly Weimar Republic about you. Here's your cabaret, but I could kill you. Thank you for that. Ah, yeah. Kurt Weill. You know, I was very, very into Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill. I was a bit obsessed with German cabaret when I was a kid. I didn't have any idea what they were saying, but I just loved the emotion of it. Mm. Weimar Cabaret that you were speaking of. That's what we were. By the way, if you are watching the movie Cabaret, stop the movie after Money Makes the World Go Round. The movie's over after that (laughs) because you don't want to get to Tomorrow Belongs to Us. It gets sad. After... Money makes it. You may be tempted to watch more of the film. Don't. In the little brief thing I saw from the promo of the doco, Stephen makes the comment that we were punk. That's what Vimea was, the Vimea cabaret, which is what we were here in that kind of strange mm. post-Whitlam liberal era, which was shit when they were bringing fees back in for education and all that stuff. So we were Also, we were quite concerned with the fact that we'd be killed with nuclear war, which makes global warming look a bit lame in some ways. And this was an industrial city. So every day you'd go out and you'd cough up a bucket load of coal. You'd hang out your washing in Newcastle and you knew where the breeze was blowing from depending on what colour the washing was when you brought it in. In some ways, the environment in Newcastle has got a lot better now. It definitely has. (laughs) And there's that constant hum from Kurigang Island that I hear. Hey, don't you love it when the guy leans on the boat horn at 3 a.m. in the morning? What the hell are you doing where you need to wake up everyone in Newcastle? We moved to Sydney. I think that changed all our lives. It did. It certainly changed my life for the better forever. I remember how we used to rehearse on a regular basis a number of times a week in Redfern. Every day, because we were on a retainer. We would go there every 
day and it was like a job. And every day we'd work out bits and we'd sit around drinking coffee and eating. Out of that came a lot of great things. And also we were attempting to earn for each other a week. $250 $250 a week, which you were able to live on in Sydney at that time. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. a retainer. And we were a cooperative. And I've been in lots of cooperative things since. That idea that we are all equal, she says. Did you see me rolling my eyes then? All equal in the eyes of God. Did you see me rolling my <laughs> eyes then? Yeah, that we could actually pay ourselves a living wage mm. as performers. We rehearsed in Redfern. Sometimes one gig a week, which would fill that money yeah, for us. Yeah. Did. The Harold yeah. Park gigs were great. The Harold Park Hotel was a great time. There was just so many of us crammed on stage there. Audiences often looked very surprised because when we were going off doing a number like Work Song or when Ange and Glenn Keenan would do their dance, the Boogie Woogie Boogle Boy, they would take up the whole stage with their great 40s dancing. There's just moments where the audience couldn't believe what they were seeing. Believe you me, listener, it was amazing to be part of a group that can do that to an audience. And this is what I found, like somebody like Stephen, who I worked with post-Castanets. I'm still on the stage with a guy doing the same shit he's been doing for 30 years. And it doesn't really matter because I find him mesmerising and you are next to brilliance. As far as I'm concerned, Warren and Stephen are genius. I think the essence of the second coming of the Castanet Club, the one that I was a part of, Stephen and Warren were this kind of genius force in the middle because they were freaky, freaky people. Please, people, have a look at the Castanet Club documentary teaser and the longer version that is going to be online in coming months. And you know the thing that made me smile the whole thing in the whole 25 minutes because I'd never seen it before? And that was the photo of Warren Coleman with his Academy Award. I knew he'd won one and I saw him with it and I couldn't stop smiling and beaming and I was so happy for him. That was my favourite part of the whole doco. I didn't care about anything else. Just, wow, that's Warren when he said he did that. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, how proud are we of Warren? I think he was the youngest person ever taken into NIDA. A lot of intellect. Genius thinking. It was quick. It was inside out. It was critical thinking. It was sideways. It was roundabout and he blew my fucking head off. Oh, Lord, please forgive me. For I have a bum. Lord, I wish that I had compressed air making these shapes under my pants. I pray you, please, seal up my bum. Do you remember that Warren grew up thinking he was an alien? Do you remember this story? Yes, and he ended up playing one on stage. Yes. Hi there, folks, I'm Bowling Man. I came from the skies with a plan. You're Bowling Man. I'm from another world. I come to talk about Bowling to the boys and girls. He was obsessed with the NASA stuff. He was a NASA expert, yes. if I remember correctly. But he has no sweat glands on his hands. That is correct. So he had these sandpaper hands. Mm. And also, he also always has to drink when he's eating. He cannot eat without drinking. I think I remember him saying that he believed that the aliens would come and pick him up one day and that they just parked him with those people who were pretending to be his parents. And if you start the Warren Coleman story there, then you get it. Bowling Man was actually his realisation of the what he thought he really was. If we could finish off with a song, would you like me to play Wuthering Heights, the 24-bit remastered version of it? Yeah, I would. Or Work Song. It's hard to Oh, God, play them both. They're both pretty interesting. Work Song went on the album. Wuthering Heights didn't go on the album, and it's something that still I don't understand. And the reason is that you could only fit 47 minutes on the album. No, there's political reasons why it didn't go on the album. I mean, why would you have somebody doing a cover of Wuthering Heights? And an awesome cover and not put it on the album when you put other stuff on the album. Put me doing the Broadway medley, really, you know what I mean? Did we need that? Give my regards to Broadway, remember me to Harold Square. 
Why do you make an album? You make an album as memorabilia, you make an album as merchandise, or you make an album to do something with. I truly believe that if we'd put that Wuthering Heights on that album, it would have taken Cassandra somewhere else. I mean, I think it would have been a single. It was great. I listened to it when you put it up the other day. Of course, I haven't heard it. I haven't heard me singing that. I haven't heard that. So to hear my voice as a 22-year-old kid singing that song in that voice, I blew myself away. And I was like, fuck, that is fucking awesome. It's a quintessential version of a song that was already a quintessential, how could you make it better? It was way too fast. It's super fast. It was like we just rushed in to get to the end. Work song was the same. <laughs> but I listen to it and I think it's the poignancy of the things that we did. It's the poignancy of somebody like Johnny singing those The Saddest Guys on Earth songs that were so heart-tugging and gorgeous. How could you not fall in love with Legsy? Legsy had 11 pints tonight And a galliano that he said a light And he stood on the table And we cheered him on and on Then we went to get a pizza to eat He stole a cigarette machine for a treat And we hid in the bushes for hours and hours and hours Poor Legsy Legsy's drunk again A beautiful reflection of where we grew up, the time we grew up, the culture we grew up in. To put Wuthering Heights in there, it was incredible to sing it. I'm a huge Kate Bush fan. I mean, she changed the world. People had kind of forgotten about it a little bit. It was released in about 78, 79. The acrobatics of that song are so incredible because nobody had ever heard anybody sing like Kate Bush. And there were a few pretenders that came along after that. But it was one of the few times that a record label actually said to a female singer, fuck, you could do whatever you want. That's what happens when you say to a female singer of that caliber that you can do whatever you want. So she was signed in as a 17-year-old and that was her first single. You know, I grew up listening to jazz and stuff, but as a singer, there's nobody like Kate Bush and that changed my life. And to then go on and sing it and to be inside that vocal, to be inside the story, to be inside the flow of that female vocal, I never heard anybody sing like that. An Irish folk singer singing in a classical way, a pop song. Let's have a listen to you singing that. And if people want to see what else you've been singing, or where can they find you? SoundCloud. Jacqueline Amity, SoundCloud. I've got a couple of albums up on iTunes, Bandcamp and YouTube. On YouTube, I'm as Jacqueline or Jack Amity, A-M-I-D-Y. It's my mother's name. Oh, it got cool up in the water. It could take my body. There'll be links to that in the show notes, so make sure you follow them. Why don't we just... No, 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 before oh, we oh, finish, though, oh, Maynard, yeah. thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and to find out what was going on and what has gone on. I went to Germany, did a lot of stuff in Germany, still go to Germany. I'm there a lot except for COVID. I hate COVID, COVID hey, shit. What's your favourite German phrase? Hop, hop, rennen, kopf. Something about your head? Quickly, quickly in your head. It's an East German cheers. Oh. I got cheers, big ears. All my friends laughed in my friends in Germany. They always say, oh, cheers, big ears. <laughs> in the back of East Germany somewhere, and this guy said, hop, hop, rennen, kopf. Quickly, quickly in your head. So get drunk quick. Please follow Jackie wherever you can. Have a look at that band can't. Have a look at the SoundCloud, and I don't think you'll be disappointed at all. Thanks, Maynard. It's really lovely seeing it. Thank you for inviting me to your gorgeous house. And why 
haven't we been seeing each other more? Oh, oh, oh.
on the opening day of the Castanet Club exhibit at the Newcastle Museum. And I've been having a really good look around here. We've got over 900 photos on three screens. We've got every different iteration of the Castanet Club represented. And there are even vinyl 12-inch albums for sale, the last of the Castanet Club stock. We have Jacqueline, how are you? I'm okay. How are you? We're talking through masks, of course, which is why I won't be talking to anyone else. What do you reckon? What's it like seeing yourself as large as life on the screen there on the stage again? I didn't realise my resolution was so low. I thought I was of high resolution, but obviously I'm wrong. The mm. pixel count on that is five. You did have the luminescent halter neck top on that was quite a good idea for a I sweaty know, show. Really? I had a shit-hot body, well, didn't well, I? Assume. I was 12 at the time. <laughs> for the heat on stage, that was a great outfit to have. It was skin-tight as well. Those oh, things, they... I was zipped into them and zipped out of them. And they got and sweaty. That's about it, yeah. And of course, as part of the exhibition, there's a recreation of a share house in Cook's Hill, which includes gaff on the sofa and a uh, sort of an 80s television with standard resolution, which is currently playing Bull Street, Cook's Hill, the controversial track off Johnny Goodman's album. Anything you've seen here you'd forgotten about you oh look at that i mean there's a lot of photos i actually took on the photo walls there but i'd forgotten that i'd taken them nothing really it's nice to see the back of the album blown up i forgot that description of my character so that's yes. interesting nothing's changed as you said likes to stay up late sings like a dream there you go <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! 
Maynard.com.au AU I'm going to the toilet. Just stay there. I'm going to the toilet. Bryson and Hume. Everything digital.